Hi, everybody. It's Paul from Mentally Unscripted. Uh, Before we start the episode, just wanted to give you a bit of background. Scott and I recorded this uh, conversation a few days ago, and uh, we really had a good dialogue. Unfortunately, there were some issues, uh, some network issues, and so the audio is a bit choppy. We don't quite get to finish the conversation. So if you get to the end and you're wondering why it just seems to cut off, now you know. But uh, we think the conversation's great, and uh, we enjoy the dialogue, and we look forward to having more conversations like this. So we hope you enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Mentally Unscripted, the number one podcast to help you uh, take complex ideas and simplify them so you can have better conversations with your friends and family. I am Paul. I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you? I'm doing good. We survived the garage sale on Saturday, and uh, I learned something about people. They will pretty much buy anything at a garage sale. So uh, used pillows, used bedding, (laughs) I, I don't know. It was just kind of amazing to me, some of the things that people were buying. Um, and we had perfectly good furniture and some kitchen utensils and stuff that weren't, uh, getting a lot of attention, but man, the used, the used clothes and the used sheets and comforters were, man, those were popular items. So I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. What, what was on. the most surprising purchase? What was the most surprising purchase from, uh, from one of the, the people? Yeah, I think it was just the used pillows, the used bed pillows, because to me, like, I don't know. I just don't know that you can you get those things clean? I, I, you know, I I don't know. I drool when I sleep. So I don't know if anybody would want one of my old pillows, but who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, Yeah, yeah, you know, people's uh, buying behavior and psychology is just very interesting. The, the, The more you see it on display, the more fascinated it becomes. Uh, or at least yeah. I become more fascinated by it. I just, you know, what are people really thinking? Yeah, and I know. And, you know, like I said, we had perfectly good kitchen items there, um, things that were barely used. Um, and just nobody yeah. really cared about that stuff. So I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we learn something new every day. And uh, that's 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 part of life. Um, you know, uh, this is going to be a different episode. We're... Um, we're going to do, uh, try and do something more news focused. And, and I know a lot of our conversations are more topical, uh, where we, we take an idea and explore it for an hour or so. But today we, we thought it would be interesting to explore headlines, talk a little bit about the story, uh, that we're seeing and, you know, provide a perspective on why you, you may or may not just want to uh, think a little bit about the, what's being shared with you. Uh, and uh, really focus on what we saw in the last week. I think there's every week is going to have some headlines. That's the nature of, um, <coughs> excuse me, an interconnected world. Uh, this week did not disappoint. So uh, why don't we start, uh, Scott, with the, the first one, which I think was about COVID numbers. Yeah, I was looking on CNN and I ran across um, this headline and it, it was basically saying that um, over 25 states have uh, now have half their uh, citizens vaccinated and that the U.S. is seeing record low COVID numbers. So the headline is obviously associating vaccinations with low COVID. And when you click on the article, and we'll put this in the show notes so you guys can take a look at it, um, they do indeed list uh, 25 states plus Washington, D.C., have now fully vaccinated at least half of their adults. Um, this is information that comes from the CDC. And there's an interesting line in the article about, uh, I don't know, about four or so paragraphs down, I guess. And it says the impact of vaccines is now obvious. The country is recording some of the lowest COVID-19 metrics in roughly a year, and officials say it could soon get even better than that. I mean, that all sounds like good news, but I I would disagree that it's now obvious. You know, obviously they're trying to say that mm-hmm. the vaccine is uh, is working and that our COVID-19 numbers are going down. And we do know that it's the position of uh, many people on the political left that we need to get everyone vaccinated. And we do know that CNN uh, falls on the left side of the political spectrum and it's reporting. So I think it's it's reasonable to go into this assuming that CNN has an interest in pushing the vaccines. 
Okay. Whatever that is, right. You know, whatever exactly that interest is, I think it's pretty, pretty clear that they have an interest. What they're not accounting for here though, is the difference between correlation and causation. So would, when we look back at the COVID charts, uh, you know, the little graphs that go up and down showing the number of cases. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it, it, we could reasonably assume that COVID is seasonal, just like the flu and just like the colds are. Um, so during the warmer months, we have fewer cases. Then when we get into the colder months, we go into what we call cold and flu season where more people get sick. So is it are our declining COVID numbers the result of the vaccine? Or is it just that we're entering the warmer months when we would expect fewer people to get sick? Are we just experiencing the seasonal decline in COVID cases uh, that the chart so shows us we should be expecting? Or, or like I said, is it the vaccine, right? We, so so we, we, we can't say that the vaccines are causing the dip when there's another variable lurking out there, namely the seasonality, um, uh, namely seasonality. And so this is, you know, you'll hear people right. say correlation does not imply causation or post hoc ergo propter hoc, right? Just because something happens doesn't mean what happens after it. It doesn't mean that the two are related. Right. And so, you know, when you're so, looking at things like this. So how much, well, I, yeah. I was going to ask, how much do you think this, this article is intended to argue a position um, scientifically or, or data driven versus really trying to feed the bias of the, uh, the people that, um, are, they want to feel good about making a decision to get the vaccine. Like they're on the right side of history. They're doing right by society. What's your thoughts on, on sort of the, the, the perspective and, 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 you know, you can also say, listen, that's the wrong question to ask, but I'm asking the question to you. Right. Uh, you know, it's probably both. You know, I wouldn't doubt that they're trying to do both. Um, I, I would think that they're, yeah, they're trying to give some people who got the vaccine maybe a warm fuzzy that the vaccine's working and they did the right thing. And they're probably also trying to shame some people who haven't gotten the vaccine into getting it, possibly. Um, although the people yeah. who haven't gotten the vaccine, I don't know that they'd be reading CNN, but maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Plus, you know, I think and, they're... And, and, and right there... Isn't that part of the the interesting aspect of this is is understanding there is a target audience for any of these news sources and to assume that they're presenting the information in a in a unbiased way. And I put that in air quotes um, so that it's applicable to all audience. One hundred percent of your global audience, I think, is is the the wrong starting point. You have to know that there is a specific target in mind, regardless of the editorial decisions made by the. Uh, by the company. Right. Yeah. CNN is obviously not targeting 100% of the people in the U.S. They're targeting the 50% or so, however, whatever the percentage is, that falls on the left side of the spectrum. And they know that those people are most likely the ones who got the vaccine. So they're going to read. So they know their readers are going to see this article and feel good about it. Um, But you know, being, being a thinking person like you and I and our listeners, right. We can read this article and see, you know, where the hole in it is. And namely it's right there that they're, they're drawing a connection between vaccines and declining cases while ignoring other lurking variables in there that could be actually um, affecting the lower COVID numbers. And so, and there's no information in here that would, that directly links the vaccines to these lower COVID numbers. Um, They're just saying the Mm -hmm. the impact of vaccines is now obvious. The country is recording some of the lowest COVID-19 metrics in roughly a year, right? There's, there's, there's no evidence that it's the vaccines that are doing that. Now we all know that the reality is just assuming for a minute that the vaccines are effective, right? The reality is it's, it's probably a combination of the two. It's the vaccines and the seasonality of uh, COVID that are lowering the numbers. And what we don't know is how much well, of each. Yeah, there's there's another question too. Is is the um, I've seen some theories, and this this goes back a year ago. That sort of all of these viruses will hit in three waves, uh, and um, you know you have this initial wave, then you have a massive wave, then you have a slower wave, and then it starts to peter out as fewer and fewer hosts are available. Now, how you get to those hosts uh, does differ. You can kill hosts. 
right? So you have a high mortality rate and there's just fewer people that can affect and the people that do survive it end up having uh, an immunity to it, a resistance to it. Uh, you can vaccinate so that the uh, there are fewer hosts that, that are susceptible to it. Right? Both, both of those are uh, not necessarily desired outcomes. You want, uh, theoretically, you want more people to survive than not. Uh, in, in, the, in the case where you've actually killed off more of your hosts, you have a much higher mortality rate. And I think most people, not all, and, and, I, and I legitimately say that, there are people that believe that we should be killing off more humans because we are damaging the earth um, or some other type of, of perspective. Um, but most people would say that that's a bad thing. So let's vaccine, uh, vaccinate instead or, or have some kind of intervention. But that is another aspect of questions like this, where you see a headline that says it's, it's obvious. Well, you know, the, the way we would know it's obvious is if you could do side-by-side comparison of, of two places that where one is, one is vaccinated and one is not. Uh, they have similar levels of density. They have similar populations. And we're actually able to study that. We're not able to do that. Uh, we have some approximations. Maybe you have counties that are more or less uh, vaccinated. You've got countries. But I mean, the, the apples to apples comparison that you're able to make there is not very clear to me most of the time. And, and most of these sensational headlines aren't actually going down to that, uh, that level of detail. Because to your point, it's, hey, look, everybody, you're right. You know, now that you got the vaccine, you're helping to save people, right? So you're, you're boosting people that got the vaccine. You're making them feel better about themselves, yeah. which is exactly how they want to feel, right? They either want to feel like they're superior or they want to feel the fear. And then they want they, the, the fear gives them another sort of boost, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and yeah, not, there's a lot to study there. Yeah. And let's not forget last summer, there were some news outlets that used declining COVID numbers during the summer to claim that that's proof that masks work. If a state implements a mask mandate on June 1st, when cases are already declining, and then two weeks later, they see cases are lower, they say, look, that proves masks work when the reality is, is cases were already on the decline anyway. And that would be one interesting thing to look at here is what, what was happening to the cases before the vaccine started to roll out? I think that might be a little difficult since it's been such a phased rollout. We don't really know when the yeah. vaccines hit any sort of critical mass. Um, and, you know, a cynic, you know, for the cynical out there, I mean, they could even argue that <laughs> the Biden administration worked with some of the states to try to time the vaccine rollouts to the seasonality of COVID so that it would make the vaccines look yeah. more effective than what they are. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that I'm a skeptic, but, you know, it's a question, uh, something you should ask. It's a question. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You know, so, you know, again, not saying that we agree or disagree here, just trying to point out that when you see something like this, right, there, there's an obvious question. There's an, a number of obvious questions here to ask um, about this conclusion that the vaccines, the impact of the vaccines are obvious. Um, I would disagree. They are. It is not anything close to obvious. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that this article doesn't take into account is, you know, we, we talk about cost benefit analysis or unintended consequences. You know, we still don't know what the long term long term impact of the vaccines is going to be. So mm-hmm. if if we could have reached the record number of low covid cases just through regular herd immunity, not using vaccines, then, um, you know, would that be preferable in light of any long-term effects from the vaccines? And that's, you know, a question right. we can't answer now, but it's something that you have to consider. Yeah. And, and, and it actually becomes more and more relevant as we get uh, hopefully better data about the impact on, on health from COVID. So oftentimes I hear people talking about COVID uh, just in terms of morta- mortality rates. Um, and just, I think in the last week, there was some revision um, or clarification is maybe a, a better way of stating it about uh, from the CDC on people that died specifically and uniquely to COVID. And that would say that those people died because of COVID alone versus people that had co- comorbidities uh, that attributed to their um, their death. And so, you know, if you've got a weak heart and then you, you had COVID, um, both of those could come together to, to lead to death. Um, but so you have sort of that population, uh, and, and there's, there's ba- the, the, some of the, of that clarification from the CDC 
was that fewer people, a, a smaller number of people died specifically of COVID. Um, and the number so small that I think people would be shocked. I think the number I saw was about 30,000. So these are people that got COVID that had no other uh, comorbidities or other types of weaknesses in the body that died uh, specifically of COVID. Then you have the rest of the population, which was uh, people that had, uh, from what I understand, a higher number of comorbidities. Many, on, I think the average I saw was four. Um, so what, does that, what does that tell me? We have a lot of people that are sick. When a virus came in that was um, of a certain kind of lethal nature, it, it attacked those people and was, was fairly effective. Um, but then again, these aren't people that have one comorbidity. They had multiple issues. Um, and that, that could explain a lot of the, the, the numbers here that, um, sort of the higher number. So if, if you, if we get a better idea of the people that died from this virus, we understand sort of the, the, the profile of the people that died and we compare that to the cost that was incurred from an economic perspective, a psychological perspective. And then, and then we start talking about the, you know, this, this, uh, mandate for, for vaccinations it, it starts to get a clearer picture on the trait of the, the cost and benefit that we need to be asking ourselves, right? Is it, is it reasonable for our governors and our presidents to have uh, executive powers to shut down our economy, to lock us in our homes for a virus that may not have been that lethal if we were more healthy? That's the question we should be asking ourselves in, in um, I think, in the next couple of years. Uh, not because yeah. not to blame the people in the past necessarily. We we need some kind of accountability. We also have to realize the the flip of that is that you have to have the cautionary principle in mind with the vaccines. You can debate whether or not the vaccines were rolled out too quickly, and you can ask the right kinds of questions about that. As as a leader, I think there's there's a reasonable expectation that if you do think that the virus is as lethal as many people believed it to be. That rolling, having a mass vaccine rollout seems like a, a way to say, listen, I, I'm worried about people dying. I'm also worried about, about the long-term effects of COVID and what it may do to your, the, your body with the spike protein and how it's going to be attacking different cells in your body. So let's go and, and vaccinate people if we can do it. Like that's the trade-off, right? It's not, a, it's not a zero or one, in my opinion. It's, it's a cost-benefit, uh, which means that there's a scale of, of benefit and cost that you have to consider. But I, I, you know, based on, I mean, I, I know exactly. I shared a lot of information. What are your thoughts there on that? No, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a lot of costs that were associated with our response to COVID. And I don't think, I'm not convinced that anybody took those all into account. And I think part of it is that we just didn't know what all the costs were going to be um, when we started. And I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of people, they had a bias towards action, right. right? They wanted to do something. They didn't want to be seen as just sitting around doing nothing, right? Because we, we view that as weakness in our culture. So they, they wanted to be a person of action and start doing something. And they did that before they really had all of the information in place, Um and this happens in the medical field a lot. You know, um, it's doctors will intervene and prescribe a medication or some therapy or something before they really understand what it is that they're treating. And there was a time up until fairly recently where the doctors ended up killing more patients or as many patients as they helped just based off based off of interventions that they didn't quite understand. So, you know, we have that here. Yeah. And this is actually another blog post that I'm working on is this idea of the illusion of control, the idea that we just can take action and we can control situations when the reality is, is sometimes we need to just sit back and gather more information and see what happens. Um, so, of course, you know, when you're a politician, that's tough to do. You know, we saw how much Trump got attacked for not doing enough yes. about COVID. Um, so, right. uh, you know, <laughs> this is one of those areas where I think sometimes rationality and reasonableness, um, it gets subsumed by just, um, hysterics and emotions. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is, it's a Absolutely. interesting question, uh, for me. And I, you know, I, I, I think you're correct. I, I don't think that the folks 
the public health officials, um, the policy experts, all that, the, the doctors, the experts on viruses, I don't think they took the entire situation into account. I think they just looked at a small number of metrics, namely the number of cases and the number of deaths, and they decided to um, start taking actions based on those without any consideration of the larger picture. And, you know, another question that just came to mind or a thought was that uh, now is the time to be preparing for the next um, uh, the next pandemic in the sense that we know that we have uh, the, the people that died of this virus overwhelmingly had comorbidities. And a lot of that is, di- is attributed to obese people, uh, people that um, have poor diets and uh, lack exercise. If we were a healthier country, we'd see fewer deaths. That's just the, that's just what the data tells us today. So right now we're talking a lot about vaccines. Well, we when we should be also talking about people to be less fat. I'm just going to be blunt about it. Lose weight. Get out there and have a better a better diet. And um, where we have issues of food scarcity, uh, nutrition scarcity, we should be talking about how to address that, right? Uh, and of course, the fact that we aren't, uh, at least not a, at the national level, I think speaks to the fact. Uh, that we're, we're more prone to simple solutions rather than real solutions, uh, which is, you know, this idea that we can just vaccinate people uh, to, to the nth degree and just fix all these issues rather than saying, listen, if, you're, if you were reasonably healthy, there was a good chance you were going to survive COVID. Um, not, and, and that doesn't mean everyone survives, but um, it does mean that this would not have had the same impact, uh, yeah, most likely. Ex- so Exactly. Anyways, but speaking of emotions, speaking of ideas, we're going to talk about the next headline, crypto. So uh, crypto, Bitcoin, we've had a couple of uh, discussions here about the value of Bitcoin and crypto very very much on a philosophical level. And, um, you know, the, the interesting part is that uh, you can't separate uh, the conversation about crypto from price. And uh, there's been a big drawdown over the last two weeks. Um, some believe it's the actually the largest drawdown in price. Uh, that we've seen uh, in the history of Bitcoin and probably for, by extension, all the other crypto assets that are out there. But uh, the, the narrative is, is obviously an interesting one. So I, I'm on CNN Business and I see crypto crackdown. China mines more Bitcoin than anywhere else. Beijing wants to, that to stop, right? Uh, so, you know, uh, the, the, the headline underneath that says Bitcoin fell as much as 13% Sunday, extending losses from brutal week, right? Uh, this is on CNN money. And so obviously this is, this is going to be geared towards people that have investments in Bitcoin or looking at, at uh, owning some. And uh, so they're, they're obviously targeting uh, that audience. Uh, and I think what you find with most of these articles, uh, at least in, in the history of me reading it for the last four years, is that they kind of go um, all over the map in terms of trying to uh, really propagate fear uh, versus trying to um, or, or uh, trying to give you this false sense of of you know boomtown uh, coming <laughs> incoming right or someone someone does a price prediction that's like a hundred x from here um, and and. Oftentimes they're very, they're, they're, um, they seem very slow to react, right? A lot of these articles, because the crypto space moves so quickly, is that you, you, you read something and then by the time you, you've read it, um, the, you know, the price has already reacted in a different direction. The, uh, the narrative is already changing. And, um, and people are kind of go, that's, that's like yesterday's news, but they're still going to read it. Um, so the, here, though, the, the, the narrative is that China wants to crack down on Bitcoin mining. And there's, there's discussions about whether or not that, that Bitcoin mining is, is all Bitcoin mining or if it's Bitcoin mining that's coming from coal. And um, I'm, I'm not an expert here in terms of understanding all of the data for the, the hashing uh, or the miners that are, that are in China. My understanding is that um, it is an accurate statement to say that the majority of Bitcoin's hash power does today come from China. Um, and then there's debate about whether or not that's coming, how much of that is coming from what we could consider green energy, uh, like solar and wind, um, or even you know electric dams or, or uh, water, uh, versus coal. 
right? Uh, coal is what uh, most people are trying to, in their mind, phase out as they see it as a, as a non-green uh, resource because of the CO2 that it emits. Um, so I, I think that this, uh, this particular article uh, and the headline does seem to be fairly accurate um, from, from all the other sources that I read. So I, I, I try and triangulate, right? If you, if you get an article and it says, okay, China wants to do X, the United States wants to do Y, try and find some other perspectives, right? I go on Twitter and I try and see if some, uh, some analysts have some other um, takes on the, on the information that maybe goes beyond my, my bias or, or my blind, um, blind sides or blind spots. Uh, and then I'll just see if there's other articles from other institutions or other, other areas that I can pull in to see if there's other details that could perhaps color, put some color commentary on what I'm reading. Um, so with this one, as I said, it does sound like the, the government wants to, does want to, um, put, um, they do want to do some some changes in the mining. They've t- at least talked about it, and they may actually be coming. Uh, that put a lot of downward pressure on the price for Bitcoin. You saw it drop substantially uh, over the last two weeks. Uh, so I, I would say that this one is is kind of in that ballpark of of probably at least having some um, some accuracy, uh, not not having too much sensationalism, but um, enough to where you know people should still remain skeptical. So Scott. Um, Thoughts here on sort of crypto and what you've read, anything about China, any of that stuff? Um, a couple things. Uh, one thing that a lot of these articles seem to be focusing in on is just the volatility in Bitcoin. Um, and I, you know, some of them, they don't, some of them seem to just, uh, just state that volatility is just a fact of Bitcoin. Others, it seems like they're maybe trying to scare people away. Um, I'm thinking of a an article that I found on um, MSN about Bitcoin's volatility. Um, Bitcoin volatility puts weekend traders on stomach churning ride. And in it, they compare Bitcoin's volatility to the U.S. equity market's VIX indicator. So the VIX, the VIX is the indicator of volatility in the U.S. market. Um, the thing is, is I'm I'm newer to the Bitcoin world than you are, but my understanding is that the, one of the appeals of Bitcoin is its volatility. That cryptos, Bitcoin specifically, offer the average investor the opportunity for those outsized gains that they're shut out of um, in the regular equity markets. So, you know, comparing, I, I don't know how much value there is in comparing Bitcoin volatility to U.S. markets for the people who are the Bitcoin maximalists or the people who are looking towards Bitcoin for that big payoff. And so I think, you know, what it serves to do is it maybe scares some people away. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there's a bit of a fear factor here. Uh, or Maybe they're just using fear to try to get people to pay a little more yeah. attention. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but the the other thing that struck me when we're when i was looking at these articles is um it's so easy and again this is an illustration of bitcoin's uh, volatility it's so easy to swing the price right so from what i was reading you know it's elon musk's announcement that tesla is no longer going to accept bitcoin as payment for his cars and um and then the the article about china cracking down on mining um, it, when just bits of news like that can cause the price to tumble by, you know, what, close to 50% in, in a week or maybe even less than a week. Um, I, again, that illustrates how volatile Bitcoin is. But again, I think, you know, for some, some people, right, it's not, that's not a bad thing. It's not something to scare them off. That, that's the, that's the appeal to it. It's like that's why they like it right. because they want that volatility right. because that means there is a very high upside um, to Bitcoin. So when people yeah. are looking at Bitcoin and and when you're deciding if you want to invest in it, and we're not giving out investment advice, um, this is just our opinions. Um, it, you know, you have to take that into account. And I I heard recently nope. that someone said, I forget where I heard it, but it was, someone said, if you're going to buy Bitcoin, you need to be prepared to hold it for about four years. Right. So even, so what that tells me is that the people in the crypto and Bitcoin world, Mm -hmm. right. They, they understand the volatility is there. So 
when I hear about all this volatility, right, it seems like it's just much ado about nothing. It's like, oh, ho-hum, yeah. yeah, we know it's volatile. That's why we like it. Um, so, you know, what do you think about that? No, I, th- that is exactly uh, the point that people need to consider um, that the, the volatility is a feature, not a bug. I think that's a great way of, of looking at it. And wh- why, why does that exist? It, it exists because it's a new asset class is, I think, the best way of looking at it. Um, you, it's, it, right now, I think the, the crypto market is probably a million or 1.5 trillion, if I had to guess, somewhere in that. Maybe it's a little bit less than that. Maybe it's a little bit more, um, which makes it very small on the global s- scale. But it's already a global asset. There's exchanges over the entire world. It's traded 24-7, 365. And so you have dynamics that are unique to a market like that that just don't exist in other markets. Um, and, and one of those is that there are no ways to stop the price movements of these commodities. Uh, you, you know, and, and I, I saw this comparison. I'm not sure it's a perfect comparison, but if... Google or Amazon is traded on the NASDAQ or a stack is traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, there's there's stop, um, stop gaps, if you will, that they, they can put into the um, into trading. So if the stock falls by a certain percentage, they can halt trading and they'll, they'll usually try and um, uh, look into why it's halted. Right. Or why it's why it's trading so low. They do this for some stocks, not all stocks. And. Uh, the idea there is that they're trying to prevent uh, market manipulation. That's that's what you hear frequently. Uh, another way of looking at that is that they're manipulating the market um, and you're not getting accurate price signals. And so this is the first time that we have a, a commodity. And I use that term, I, I guess, loosely, right? But you take the, the Bitcoin assets, the crypto assets, you've got commodities that are traded globally. And the price signals are coming from all the exchanges across the across the globe, and that's going to continue to become more robust, not less robust, as as decentralized exchanges grow in in value. So uh, it's possible that in the next decade, that volatility is tampered uh, just by size of the asset class. Uh, but today, it's very much part of a, a young and emerging area. Uh, and, and it's also a property of a, of an asset that simply does, doesn't exist in, in, um, you know, what we consider traditional areas like bonds, equities, uh, treasuries, um, you know, until we actually have, you know, full crashes and then there's, <laughs> there's not a whole lot that they can do. Um, so th- th- that is another aspect of that you should, you should be asking yourself when you're reading these articles is you know, what are they trying to, what assumptions sit behind uh, what's been you know, uh, shared here? Uh, one of them is that volatility is bad and uh, volatility is, is neutral. I mean, if you just said volatility and it's constantly going up, I don't think anybody complains. The volatility implies the direction being up and down. Uh, but uh, if if you're joining an asset class early and uh, you expect that that volatility exists there, uh, then you should still, um, uh, and you have you have the the appropriate time horizon, right? Uh, then uh, you're still looking to benefit from that being an early adopter, taking on that additional risk, and uh, and seeing that investment through. And that's that's you know one of the metrics I think we've talked about in one of our other episodes is this idea of the sharp ratio, which is a measure of volatility and return. Uh, and what, uh, there's a, there's a video I can, I, we can link to in the description, um, which did a analysis of, of crypto assets doing, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum and Litecoin and looking at the, the sharp ratio and, um, simply put, you know, Bitcoin has the best sharp ratio return of any asset class, uh, over the last decade. Uh, and so, you know, whenever you're talking about volatility, people should should be uh, including that as part of the conversation, not just the volatility that that has to be taken on the, or the risk, but yeah. the the reward yeah, that you're so, getting out of it too. And yeah, so, uh, what? Well, yeah, yeah, well, I was so going to say, what what wonder, else do you think um, we need to talk about from a Bitcoin perspective? You know, we've we've heard rumors. Um, some folks have said that, or some folks are of the opinion that climate change is going to be the neat next big panic um that that's what the um 
the, the media and mm-hmm. the politicians are going to really start focusing on. So I wonder if some of this that we're hearing about, you know, China trying to cut down on the miners and about the miners being just these massive polluters. I wonder how much of this, if any, um, is just bad publicity that's being encouraged by governments who don't want to see widespread adoption of Bitcoin, that they think that maybe if they tell people that, you know, Bitcoin is ruining the environment, Mm -hmm. that uh, maybe fewer people would adopt it. And then that would be less of a headache uh, for these companies, for the, for countries that, you know, let's face it based on yeah. their history, they may not be very supportive of this type of currency. What do you think? I, I think that's a great question to ask. And that's exactly what, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about when, uh, not, not just for Bitcoin, but for any kind of technology that, uh, removes power from governments, there's a question about whether or not it's, it's the, the, the environmental, what they call ESG, um, I think, which I, I'm, I'm thinking stands for environmental and sustainability and governance, is this new mantra you're hearing about in corporate America, you're hearing about it in governments, this idea that we have to create a, a future that is sustainable and it's environmentally uh, lower impact and we've got proper governance. When you look at the activities taken by, by companies that are really trying to um, apply ESG, sometimes you're just scratching your head. And so the great example I see here is someone says, well, listen, we want to use green energy uh, for whatever we're doing to create electricity and get rid of fossil fuels. Well, my question is then why aren't you focused on nuclear? Why are you focused on electricity sources like, like solar, which requires coal to generate the actual solar cell, right? That's how you actually get the, the filament that you're actually putting into these uh, solar cells. And then on top of that, you've got the arc furnaces <laughs> that are powered primarily by coal, uh, which are used in the production of all of these materials. You contrast that with nuclear power, uh, which does have the cost of the spent uh, fuel rods, the uranium rods, um, but that, that cost is a lot lower. Uh, and you have exponential energy that you can get out of, out of a nuclear, um, nuclear reactor. So are, are you re- do you really care about the environment or do you have a position in solar panels? Right. Or is this all just a smokescreen so that you can you can control people and maintain your power base? Another thing I noticed here is in this article, the one on CNN business, it says uh, in China alone, Bitcoin is projected to generate more than 130 million metric tons of carbon emissions by 2024. That's more than the total annual carbon emissions output from the Czech Republic and Qatar in 2016. Um, And this makes me think of base rates. Right. Right. you know, I is 130 million metric tons of carbon. Is that a lot? Mm-hmm. I yep. mean, it's, it seems like they're saying it is because they're comparing it to two countries. They're going back to 2016, which this is 2021. I don't know why they're going back five years yep. um, to do that. Um, but that's the thing. Sorry. I mean, they definitely <laughs> make it sound like it's a lot, but I, yeah. I don't know. I know the Czech Republic is industrialized. Cutter, I imagine, has some industrial has some industrialization to it. Um, but, uh, you know, on the grand scale, right, what is the Czech Republic right. and Qatar? I mean, are we talking about, are they equivalent to, you know, Virginia in the U.S.? Or are they equivalent to, you know, three quarters of the United States? Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, so, and this is what we talk about base rates, right? Understand what you're comparing. 130 million metric tons, it sounds a lot. It's more than two countries, right? It sounds a lot, but is it is it really a lot? Let's compare it. So, um, and you know, what is 130 metric tons compared to China's total output? You know, like I said, it sounds like a lot, but I don't know if it is. Okay. So, uh, we, we, we talked about, uh, you know, vaccines, we've talked about Bitcoin. I think we had one other topic we were going to cover today and I I think it's COVID related. Was that that the last one one we were going to talk about? This one's definitely in your wheelhouse. This is something, you know, a lot more about than I do. Um, This is off of factcheck.org, and it's titled The Wuhan Lab and the Gain-of-Function Disagreement. And this uh, just came out today, and it's a pretty long article, uh, pretty interesting. But what it gets into is just a lot of the discussion over, um, I guess, the history of the debate over whether COVID-19 was... uh, 
a, a virus that developed naturally or whether it was possibly something developed in a lab. Um, and for the folks who don't know, you know, when the when the pandemic first started last year, it, it talks of this being a lab creation that escaped were pretty much dismissed as uh, conspiracy theories. Um, it, people were getting posts taken down off of social media if they mentioned it. Um, but recently, uh, it's come back into the news because people are starting to look at it, starting to look at it as a valid hypothesis. And um, PolitiFact has even uh, apparently changed its stance on the lab leak hypothesis as being a possibility. And we're starting to see folks, scientists who are coming out saying we need more research into this. Um, so this article is, I guess, it, it, a lot of the article centers around a disagreement mm -hmm. that Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci had um, recently regarding U.S. Uh, grant money that was given to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is where uh, the lab leak theories say that the virus came from. Uh, but I think it goes a, a little deeper in outside of that too, and it it looks at some other uh, some other information, other comments by other people, and so it's it's a, it's a pretty interesting read. Um, I don't know, Paul. What did, what did you think when you read this? Well, um, I, we we talked a bit about it offline, but the the first point that came to mind was lower order and higher order thinking. So the lower order in my sort of the way I'm using that language is that here, here the, uh, the article talks, uh, initially about this, this debate between funding coming from a grant, uh, from the United States to the Wuhan lab. And that's the debate. And, and I did watch the exchange between, uh, Paul and Dr. Fauci. And, uh, so there's, there's this idea, uh, that there's this political nature that, that we have to entertain that, you know, the conversation has to be biased towards, uh, their political parties. And therefore we should start asking the, the specific facts of, of whether or not, um, what, what Paul said was correct versus what Fauci is saying is correct. And my issue with that is that the higher order question is whether or not, uh, if, if there is funding that's being made whether or not there should be, um, we should be conducting this kind of research at all. And so last year, and, and this is why you were saying, maybe I, I know a little bit more about this. I, I, I would say I don't, but last year, uh, I, doing some research in March or April of last year, I, I started reading about gain of function. It was a, it was a concept or, or a topic I knew nothing about. Uh, I didn't realize that there were scientists that were taking viruses manipulating them so they could understand how they would attack, attack uh, human hosts. And so the, the, the concept here is that you take, you take a virus that cannot currently attack humans and you put it in a lab and then you um, manipulate it in some way so that it could potentially attack hosts. And you study how that occurs so that you can, you can develop a vaccine or some kind of um, treatment in advance of that virus. Right. That's that's the concept of gain of function, as I as I understand it. And when I read that, I thought to myself, that's insane. That's insane because the risk of 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 a leak sounds so high. And, and what I then found out was that during the Obama administration, so in the late 2000s, early 2010s, there were a series of fairly high profile lab leaks in the United States, not outside the country, in the United States where uh, different materials were improperly handled at these labs in the United States. So each lab has a certain grade uh, in terms of what they can actually handle. And there are certain procedures that they're expected to, uh, to follow. And the issue wasn't that, uh, at least the issues that I read about, weren't uh, that they were improperly manipulating the viruses. It was that they were improperly handling samples. That samples were being, um, you know, imagine taking anthrax and putting it in the mail. Right and sending it via UPS or FedEx and hoping that it arrives to the intended sender or the intended recipient, and that they then handle it correctly. I mean, I think the common person could ask the question: well, What happens if it's it's handled incorrectly? What if that package is thrown in the back of a UPS truck and it just gets smashed? And what I'm describing is is the nth degree of of you know that that isn't what happened. But they did have instances of things like anthrax being left in hallways, 
And so the Obama administration, kudos to them, said, okay, we got to put a, a stop to this. We need better protocols for managing the, how viruses are moved around, and particularly between places that are studying them in this way. So that's the history. Bring us forward to this conversation now. Should we care whether or not the United States funded uh, studies and gain of research um, and, and whether or not what Fauci is saying is accurate or inaccurate? I think that's not the right question. I think the right question should be something more along the, the lines of, should we be funding virus research that could potentially lead to leaks? And, and this, this doesn't mean that the virus had to be manipulated and that it was actually created in a lab. It could say something like, well, it, it could have uh, been cross-contaminated. And, in, and it may be at the point in which it wasn't quite ready to jump into host. It was left on a, on a, you know, a lab coat of somebody, and then they, they took it to, to the Wuhan lab. They took it to the Wuhan lab market, and then it spread to a pangolin, then it came into the human population. So you know, they, they actually introduced the ability for it to go viral, even without having to actually um, enhance it. And that's the question we should be asking ourselves. And so the, the article, to me, needs to get to the higher, higher question. So, you know, that's a long way of saying I, I, whenever you see these types of articles and they're, they're positioning um, the or framing the argument, ask about the frame. And that's what, I, that's what I struggle with here. I don't think that the article itself is bad, but I think the framing misses the, the bigger, bigger question. Right. They, they definitely seem to be focusing on the discussion between Fauci and Rand Paul regarding uh, the U.S. funding of this lab when – like you said, is, um, why, you know, first off, like you said, is, does this research even need to be done in the first place? Second off, I mean, should we be funding labs in China? Um, if we're looking at China as our next great, you know, threat to our right life and liberty and our way of life, uh, you know, should we be giving them Monday money? You know, what's, what are we getting out of it? What's, you know, what's the bigger relationship there? Um, and one thing I noticed, um, in this article is they did mm-hmm. mention that, uh, you know, Rand Paul, they seem to be criticizing him because he's apparently assuming that all money that we are giving to the lab is going to gain a function research, which apparently has not been established yet. Um, but my question is, is, I mean, does it matter that our funding was earmarked for gain of function research or not? The fact that we gave them funding for let's just say they're doing gain of function research on one side and they're researching, you know, the, you know, the, the, the better uh, cold remedy on the other side. And we give them the funding to research the better cold remedy. Well, wouldn't that give them the ability to divert some of the funding, some other funding away from the better cold remedy over into the gain of function research? So we're not directly funding the gain of function, but indirectly fund, funding it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know exactly how that works, but that's one question that comes up in my mind is just because it's not earmarked for something, does it matter? Um, I think we've seen plenty of examples in the U.S. government where <laughs> money that's supposed to be for one thing gets spent on something else. So I, I don't think that just because, you know, we weren't directly funding gain of function research means that the funding that we gave to the lab did in some way indirectly lead to uh, helping them do that research. Uh, so, yeah, a couple, couple questions I have there. I, I would also add that this is a great time to be thinking about, um, I, I guess I'll say Bayesian thinking, uh, which is a way of asking what is your, you know, what is the information I have today? What probabilities would I assign to an outcome? And then as I get new information, I update those priors and I change the outcomes um, or the probability of an event. And so here we have an amazing history of the Chinese government and the CCP and uh, having a relationship with the PRC, right? So uh, the the People's uh, Republic of uh, China, their their military arm. Uh, we have countless examples of the military having direct access to uh, what you could consider private laboratories uh, and and private institutions and pri- and you know private uh, businesses. So we see that activity happening all the time. And we're seeing uh, just recently 
that the founders of some of these technology companies, some of the largest in China, have been removed from their posts. And there's different ways in which this occurs. Um, but you know, the, the Jack Ma was removed from Alibaba, and two or three other of their CEOs have basically been been taken out. And there's an official narrative about why this is happening, and then the, the unofficial, uh, which is has to do with um, you know they're concentrating their power. The, the CEOs are being abusive of the marketplace. Um, and so they, they, they're basically bad actors. And then the, the non-official narrative is something like, well, the, the Chinese government, which again seeks to remove volatility and re- remove any, any kind of dissent from its, its ranks, saw them as threats. And so they've, they've quietly moved them to the side. And so, uh, you know, where, where does that leave us? Well, what that tells us is that there, there is no distinction in, in practice between private enterprises uh, private laboratories from the government and from the people, right? So whatever you may think of in terms of the um, what you have in your head of research that may be done at a, at a school in the United States that's that's going to be funded, you know what is owned by the by the institution versus what they give to the U.S. military. Those same rules do not apply. So if you understand that, and then you extrapolate that out to understand that. If you give money to a laboratory in uh, in China, you know that you're giving money to the government. Like j- that's just by virtue of the fact that they, they can own all of these um, uh, own own they own the system. There are no real property rights as as exist in the United States and other Western democracies. So, going back to the question of well, are they? Uh, you know, do we have to do we have to parse out whether or not that money was or was not explicitly used for this type of funding? You could you could just ask the, the the other question: what what kind of funding are we giving at all that has to be conducted in Wuhan that we should actually be funding, knowing that the government and the military has direct access to it? And and again, all the information that we have about the way that the PRC and the CCP operate suggests that that's exactly how it works. So uh, that's what we should be asking the question about.